Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so with me is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. You know, um, we, we sometimes forget to mention to people that we record this at the P&T Knitwear podcast studio on Orchard Street, 180 Orchard Street, um, but today we are not there. <laughs> no, but 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 you're right. We, we keep, I, I got a nice reminder from Julie that uh, if, if I'm not plugging our podcast studio, who will? Um, and so going forward, not only will we mention that, but we're putting up a sign in the studio itself asking people um, to please say that they're they're recording from there. And I think given that it's the only free podcast studio anywhere that we're aware of, it's, it's a reasonable request. Now, the last few times I've been uh, in the store, uh, there have been I couldn't get into the podcast studio because there were people using it. Um, which I was pretty psyched about and is obviously what the intention is. Um, as much as no, it would be yeah. cool if it were just the place for me and you to hang out, it is not that. No, we're, we're, we are slowly, but sure. I was, I was in the store on Saturday morning and it wasn't packed, but there were more customers. So we're, we're slowly but surely uh, making progress. Well, bookstores are the ultimate sort of word of mouth, like get into people's habits. It's, you know, you're not looking for one-time consumers. You're looking for people who make it part of their routine. And, and yeah. that does take a minute to- And tourists. Yeah. yeah. Tourists. Tourists. Cool. All right. Let's kick it off, man. Okay. So um, uh, Mayday, um, why don't you, uh, 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 Mayday's a, a, a cause that you've been involved with. It's about yeah. spreading information about how women can, can get um, abortions in states where, um, where it may be illegal. Yeah. So, so Mayday is a education nonprofit that we and some, and some other people created just to make sure that women who live in states where abortion is not an option, at least know what their options are. And, um, the, the two drugs uh, that uh, are used in 50% of abortions right now that are FDA approved um, are federally legal and therefore, according to the Department of Justice, can still be used by women um, in red states or states that ban abortion either way. So Mayday basically says, here's how you obtain them. Here's how you do it through mail forwarding. Here are your legal rights. Um, so the state of South Carolina, a state senator, introduced a bill that would make it illegal to aid, abet, or conspire with someone to obtain an abortion. So it would outlaw providing information over the internet or phone about how to obtain an abortion, make it illegal to host a website or provide an internet service with information that's likely reasonably to be used for an abortion. So basically Mayday, right? And I don't know if they know that Mayday specifically exists or they're just thinking about a bigger picture, um, but clearly it takes what we've been doing. And this is the first time that we've seen since we launched a specific legislative effort um, to prevent what we're doing. So it's interesting and it raises a lot of questions. So question number one is, is this bill constitutional? Um, I don't think so. Uh, our lawyers don't think so. And people quoted in the Washington Post article don't think so. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, are we going to stop doing what we're doing? Absolutely not. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, what we are doing is completely constitutional and right. And if that means I can never eat in Charleston again, so be it. Um, number three is, will the internet service providers, um, not host Mayday and other sites in those states? I don't think so, at least for as long as the, the Biden administration or Democratic administration is, is around. Um, but that's obviously another issue that has to be fi figured out. So basically what it all says is we are heading into a cycle of called three to five years of laws being passed, being challenged in court, probably by both sides of the aisle. Um, litigation making its way out from district court to appellate court, to ultimately the Supreme Court. Um, maybe we lose in the Supreme Court because they're just 
you know, at this point, very pro-life, or maybe some of the specific issues within that are ones that they they don't agree with. Um, but yeah, it's just it's going to be a crazy, crazy morass for the next five years or so. But until why do, some, you, why do you say five years? What do you think is going to change? Just, just, I'm just from my experience as a lawyer, the time that it takes from a bill to get introduced, from a lawsuit to get filed, till the time it makes it all the way through the Supreme Court. Um, it, it, it could be expedited, but if you're talking about you need three different courts to weigh in on it, plus appeals. It's just hard to see it happening much sooner than five years. Do you think the uh, citizens of the state of South Carolina would like a different internet in the way that China has a different internet? No, I mean, that, and that's the thing, right? Which is like, as, as much as I hate this bill, in some ways, I think it's actually very helpful because the, the pro-lifers are going to cross the line in a couple of ways that are really going to backfire. One is they're going to go after women individually um, and while sort of the concept of abortion is one thing, when you see a 10-year-old that, that was raped and can't get an abortion or a woman who uh, ha- has a dead fetus in her and can't have it removed for three weeks because she's in the wrong state, um, I think that really does resonate with people and changes their opinion and their perspective. And two, people, especially in this country, do not like being told what they're allowed to say, what they're allowed to read, what they're allowed to access. Um, this is not China. This is the United States of America. Um, and I truly believe that even the people of South Carolina will say we're not willing to live in a police state where we don't have the ability to access information that we want to access. So I actually think in some ways this is significant overreach by the National Right to Life Committee who sponsored the bill um, and uh, it may ultimately end up helping us at the end of the day. As you guys have been gaming out, you know, how May Day is going to go, it, it, was this on the on the, on the the radar screen? Or yeah, something? I, mean, I think what we knew is that there would just be a slew of legislation uh, back and forth. So look, we're passing bills that provide sanctuary um, for doctors uh, and others who provide, you know, access to abortion counseling. Uh, so if you're in a blue state and we've passed that law, it means that you can't be extradited to South Carolina or tried by the state of South Carolina, you know, if you're in New York. Um, so yeah, we're passing bills, they're passing bills, they'll co- challenge constitutionally of our constitutionality of our bills, we'll challenge constitutionality of their bills. We, in this case, meaning the entire pro-life, I'm sorry, president, uh, pro-choice community of which our role specifically is, is May Day. Um, and that's why, that's why I think it'll just go into this morass of litigation that ultimately gets resolved in like five years. So I think for the next five years, it may be that pretty much anything goes because no one's going to know what's illegal or, or illegal. What, tell me what's going on otherwise. So this is a, a, a potentially a good thing in that it's a galvanizing fight that, that, that you want to you be having. You want to be, um, A, it helps hopefully spread the word about, about Made It to other people um, so, that, so that what you're doing is, is, is known um, and, and understood. Um, but what else is going on with Made It? What, how, how is it being un, uh, un, unrolled and what's, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, it's it's moving forward really nicely. Uh, we got 25 million impressions uh, in the first couple of days. Uh, traffic to some of the online abortion providers has skyrocketed 500%. One of them saw a 3,000% increase. Uh, I don't think that's all because of us, but I think some of it is probably coming from us. Um, we are... Uh, working on legislation in a bunch of different states to provide sanctuary for doctors and pharmacists. So we've passed bills in New York and New Jersey. There are also bills that were passed separately from us in in Connecticut and California. We've got a bill pending right now in Massachusetts, uh, and we're going to be running legislation basically in every state that we possibly can. Um, And then it's awareness, right? Because the, the main reason to me why May Day is so important is it's the only thing that can scale. 
right? There's all this talk about bringing women from red states to blue states to get abortions, and that's great. But that is an incredibly labor-intensive, expensive, difficult thing to do, which means it'll happen sort of in bits and pieces, but it's not going to become the widespread solution for women who lost their their right to be able to choose what to do with their own bodies. But um, technology does scale, right? And the U.S. mail um, it can easily be used to provide access to medication uh, at people's homes. And so to me, this is the only solution, right? I think about Abby, my daughter, who's 16. If she got pregnant and we were living in a red state and she didn't come, want to come to us about it, um, she would not have the wherewithal to get to another state, right? No matter how many programs exist. But you know what she spends all day doing? Looking at her phone. And you know what she's good at? Finding websites and finding stuff online and ordering stuff online. And so to me, whether it's young women who just don't have the wherewithal to find other ways to get an abortion or just generally speaking, a way to provide it at scale, I think Bayday is the only way to do it. So big picture, do you think the, 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 the reaction to the sort of abortion rollback uh, from activists, I'm not going to say on the left, but I guess most of them are on the left. Um, do you think it's? Are you overall impressed with it? Do you think? Do you think that that it it served the right? Not not really. I mean, look, I appreciate the fact that a lot of people have at least quietly and privately provided us with support and encouragement. Um, I understand why some people think what we're doing is too aggressive and don't want to be associated with it, and that that's fine. That, that's are you fine. running into a lot of that? Some of it, yeah. I, or uh, you know what a lot of it is? We love what you're doing. We just can't publicly say so, right? Uh, and I get that. And by the way, like it's been that way for me most of my life on one thing or another that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm pretty used to this. Um, no, I, I, I think there was um, a, a lot of sort of gnashing of teeth and, and tearing of shirts and, and mint of garments uh, not accompanied by real tangible action. And yes, this is an incredibly emotional issue. And yes, people are right to just be upset about it. Um, but the real trick is to try to fix it. And so I know we're doing that. Um, but have I seen a lot of other really strong, tangible efforts um, by the pro-choice community to pass legislation, to provide access to information, to take real steps? Um, some, but, but they could do a lot better. All right. Um, we'll obviously be returning to this topic often in future, uh, future podcasts. Um, but now we're going to do one of our signature hard pivots into a completely different subject. Um, uh, you wrote a, uh, a piece about why uh, New York City mayors never go on to higher office. Um, okay, so why don't you why don't you tell us why don't yeah, they? Yeah, so, so it's, I'm going to read um, one line from it, uh, one paragraph from it. Um, in fact, in its modern history, no New York City mayor has ever won subsequent office. The job that's considered the second hardest in all of politics, a job that provides a global platform every single day, a job with close to unchecked power in running the greatest city in the world, is very much also one type of job, another job, is also very much one other type of job as well, dead end. So point being, um, Mayor of New York City is the, the greatest job in the world as far as I'm concerned. When I worked at City Hall, that's the most fun I've ever had. Um, it is seen as the second hardest job in politics. But what's kind of amazing about it is despite having the power to do really impactful things, despite having a global platform every single day, um, despite being located in the media capital of the world, the financial capital of the world, where the UN is and everything else, um, no New York City mayor uh, has ever actually won another office, and it's not for lack of trying. So the most 
recent example is that Bill de Blasio, who uh, was running for the open seat uh, in Brooklyn, the 10th Congressional District, um, suspended his campaign last week. Obviously, the polling must have been pretty horrendous. Wait, have you watched the video yet? No, I don't know. I, it just takes too long. It's not that long. I would just think, if, given your long-running feud with de Blasio, I, I mean, I, I, I don't feel as strongly about de Blasio as you do, but I, 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 was, I, I don't know if I was touched exactly, but it definitely seemed authentic. Yeah, I think he's authentically upset that his career is destroyed. Sure, uh, I, I, I buy that. But what's interesting is you can say, okay, so de Blasio ran for president. He almost ran for governor. He did run for Congress, failed in all of them. But, you know, he's considered the worst mayor in New York City did history. He better in Iowa, do you think, than he did in the 10th district? He may have. Uh, he might. The people of Iowa might like him slightly better because they know him less. Um, right. So so the first thought is, well, it's just, it's just de Blasio, right? He's, he's a train wreck in every way, shape, and form. But that's not true, right? So Mike Bloomberg, very popular mayor. Ran for president. That did not go well at all. Uh, also, well DePrezzi is not a train wreck in every way. As, as you guys mentioned on the podcast last week, I mean, he is a good campaigner and 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 has some surprising skills on that. You admit that, well, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. although less than we would have thought um, if right. he had to run this race. But look, Mike was popular mayor, ran for president, went nowhere. Rudy's now let's, lost his fucking let's, let's, stop on, let, let's stop on Bloomberg for a second because obviously you're really intimately involved. I, I, had, I had a counterfactual question on this, okay? So so you, you, you ran... Um, uh, Bloomberg's 2009 re-election. Yep. Um, if at that point Mike had come to you and said, I really, I see 2016 as the goal here. Uh, yep. What should I do uh, in my last term as mayor to set myself up? Obama's going to be president for eight years and then 2016 is going to be when I go all in. Right. What could you have, what would you have recommended he do to set himself up for that moment. Well, well, interestingly, so at the time, you know, Mike um, is at his heart an independent, though he's been members of, of both parties. At the time, he was an independent, but we were also running on the Republican Party line for mayor. Mm -hmm. um, and the Tea Party was just getting started then, right? right? So I don't know that at that point I could have predicted the Republican Party by 2016 would have moved so far to the right as to nominate uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, and keep in mind, think you could have. <laughs> 2012 nominee was Mitt Romney, who's, you know, reasonably centrist for today's Republican Party. Right. So one path would have been, okay, if you're going to run as a Republican, it probably would have been sort of the Romney route, right? kind of the, the moderate pro-business Republican who can attract crossover support from independents and Democrats. Or it could have been, all right, you're going to run as a Democrat to replace Obama, um, and you've got to change your registration. Either way, you have to change your registration to one of those parties um, and start moving further to the left. Well, the problem with Mike is Mike doesn't move to the left or the right or the middle to sort of position himself politically. He just won't do that, right? He just does what he wants to do and what he thinks is right regardless. So it's very hard to sort of do what you're suggesting because you can't, unlike every other politician in the world, his primary motivation is not winning elections. So therefore, you can't kind of line everything up neatly to, to allow for that. Or the third is what we ended up doing, which was, you know, Mike came very, very close to pulling the trigger in 2016 to running as an independent to the point where, you know, we had ballot operations set up in different states. We had legal counsel set up in different states. We had rented office space in different states, you know, um, and I, I was putting all this together at the time. And you know, the, the theory then would have been because Trump and Hillary were both so wildly unpopular, Mike could make sure that no one got to 270. The election would go to the House. Um, and then we become a compromise candidate. Mike did not run because he was worried that he would actually help elect Trump, which was a valid concern. In retrospect, he might have been the only thing that would have prevented Trump. 
Um, but nonetheless, uh, that was the third path. Put us in the room for that, just because you were in the room. Yeah. Um, when that decision finally comes down not to run, like how did you did you fight it right up to the last? Did you realize? No, I mean, I was I was one probably the most aggressive in favor of doing it as an independent. And look, within the Bloomberg world, you being aggressive, I I don't really see that. Right. And then also within the Bloomberg world, I'm probably the the most kind of out there on political reform. And also, you know, other people in the Bloomberg world are very pro-Mike, but they're also strong Democrats, right, which I am not. So um, they're more partisan and, and, and therefore the notion of upending the entire system appealed to them less than it appealed to someone like me. Um, look, I I made the case to Mike that we could run a completely unconventional campaign, do everything differently than it's ever been done before, um, and that if if you want if you run a conventional campaign, you get a conventional outcome, which in this case would have been failure. If you run a truly unconventional campaign, at least you have a shot at an unconventional outcome, which would have been success. So yeah, look, emotionally, I was pretty devastated by it because I think. Um, you know, I'd always want to run a presidential campaign, maybe, you know, be White House chief of staff. And then I came to realize over time that I, I didn't always want, I don't want that. I only wanted it if it could be for someone that I truly, truly respected like Mike. And once he chose not to do it, it kind of occurred to me that it's, I'm never going to end up doing it because I'm not going to do it just for the sake of it for some, you know, hack politician because they want power, you know. So uh, for me, it was sort of emotionally tough because it was kind of the, the realization of the end of a dream. Um, and look, I wish Mike had done it because... Uh, and worst that would have happened was Trump still would have won, uh, but best would have been that that Mike would have won or Hillary would have won. And yeah, but if but if but if he if he'd run and Trump had won, nobody would have foreseen that happening without him in the race, right? So they, they for sure, and, that, and that's and that's why I didn't do it, and I, I don't blame him for it at all. Uh, history just showed that ultimately it would have been worth taking a shot. Yeah, well, that's yeah, for sure. Let's, let's, get, let's get back to the the mayor's thing here because I, I do I do I want to talk about Giuliani in particular, but go ahead. I mean, he, here's the point, which is why is it that you have these people? So Bloomberg, Giuliani, Koch, Lindsay, these incredible political figures, some based on charisma like, like Lindsay, some based on competence like Mike, um, some based on sort of this weird New Yorky effect that really worked like Koch and Rudy. Um, so, so given all of that, um, why can't they win subsequent office, right? And that, that's what the column really tries to, to analyze. And I, at least I have a couple of conclusions. And one is, it's because you can't hide, right? If you are a legislator, whether it's in a city council, state legislature, Congress, you know, at best you're making decisions at 50,000 feet and you're not running anything. You have no responsibility for anything. When you have actual operating responsibility for the streets and the schools, the roads and the parks, prisons and waste transfer stations, you know, two things are invariably gonna happen. The first is you can't get everything right. And when you're the mayor of New York City, you have over 300,000 employees, which means someone's doing something wrong, either intentionally or unintentionally or both, every single minute of the day. And you own all of that, right? Every fuck up by all 300,000 people is your fuck up. And second, you, because you have to make decisions all day, every day that are hard decisions, someone's always going to be the other side of the trade, right? So take policing. Rudy and Mike uh, use very, very aggressive policing, and they cut crime dramatically. The city was far safer with them than it is today. Um, but a lot of New Yorkers felt, and not unjustifiably so, that their privacy and their rights were being sacrificed along with it. De Blasio ran on the platform of ending stop and frisk, did end it, implemented very lax policing, which now has led to a city that's completely gripped by fear and violence. So look, either path was going to alienate a lot of people um, on one side or the other. If you're 
uh, a, a legislator, even sometimes if you're like a governor and you're not really running that many things directly so much as you're sort of overseeing regulatory bodies, uh, you can kind of avoid constantly having to make those choices, but you really, you really can't as mayor. And the third is, it, it's funny because like I remember when uh, 2006, Schumer thought about running for governor of New York. Um, and I, this is before he and I kind of had a falling out and we talked about it. I was in Illinois at the time and, and because I was the deputy governor, he wanted my perspective of kind of what being governor is, is like. Um, and I said to him, look, I, I know that for you, the idea of having a press corps that just follows you around all day, chronicling everything you do sounds incredible because Chuck obviously desires press more than any politician other than Donald Trump. But it's actually not incredible, right? Because you, right now you have a press conference, you announce some idea, they cover it. It's generally very favorable and they go away. Whereas if you're the city hall press corps, you're incredibly incentivized to find fault, to create controversy, sow division, uncover wrongdoing, basically to fuck up the life of the mayor every single day. And then when you run for subsequent office, um, all those failures, all those stories are just repeated constantly by your opponents, by the media, by Twitter, all day, every day. Um, my point to Chuck was, you have it really good right now in that you get the kind of coverage you want without having sort of all of the consequences that come with actually running something, um, you're better off staying in the Senate. Now, he didn't stay in the Senate because I gave him that advice, but, but I do think that it, it's a salient point, which is every politician wants constant attention and coverage, but then when you actually have it and get it, so much of it is invariably going to be negative that it really hamstrings your ability to run for future office. Right. So what would, what would you, uh, what would, what kind of person would it take to change this calculus? I mean, like what, what's the, is it just, is it just going to be that way forever? The, the, the mayor of New York will never be a, someone with a political future? Um, I, yeah, I think so. So, you know, look, we can look at Eric Adams and say, okay, he is a moderate Democrat, incredibly charismatic, African-American, and you can kind of plot a path where he could become governor or president or senator or whatever it is. But, you know, Everyone did that for Bloomberg and Lindsay and Koch and Rudy and even de Blasio and Mike and de Blasio. Right. So like, um, yeah, you can plot this stuff out and it could sound good on paper. But the reality is, by the time that you're done making all the decisions that it takes to run the city of New York, by the time that you're done owning all the problems that incur in running the city of New York and also with the personality type to be mayor, what we want in our mayor is someone who is brash and out there, aggressive, combative, even arrogant. Um, and it's funny, obviously, yeah, Trump's, Trump's, all those, <laughs> right, Trump's all those things and it was it worked for him. But that same characteristic for the you know five New York City mayors that we can identify who ran for president really did not work. Right. So um, while closest, was it like 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 if you could redo their their career, if you, Bradley, could go back in history and run the campaign. Obviously, you, you were involved with Bloomberg, so we have to take that one off the board. But the others. Do you think you could have worked with Lindsay? Do you think you could have worked no. with Koch? Do you think you could no, have worked with No, I mean, just keep in mind, they, they all did terribly, right? Yeah, Rudy terrible. won yeah. delegate. Mike won one jurisdiction. Um, de Blasio didn't even make it through the first caucus. Giuliani uh, might have been closest in the sense that, like, he was definitely the front runner for a minute, right? Yeah, but then he, he blew up and, and spectacularly failed. Um, right. Lindsay's before my time, but same thing. Spectacular failures, I understand it. So, like, no, I think the answer is... If you're mayor of the city of New York, you have to accept that it is both the best job in politics and a dead end job. It will be the last elected office you hold. And you have to so care about the city of New York and so want to be mayor. That that's why you do it. And that's why it's such a disaster. What do you think for the the chances are that, that Adams believes that? 
Probably not at all, right? Because when you're yeah, sitting right. in the throne, you, you don't want to accept that. Yeah. And look, de Blasio did see the mayoralty as a stepping stone. He didn't like the day-to-day job itself. And it was a disaster for him because he hated the job. New Yorkers hated that he hated the job. So they really resented him. Right. And then when it came time for do what he wanted to do, which was turn it into higher office, he failed every single time. So the point is, um, de Blasio's sort of dropping out of the race is just not only a continuation of the streak, of New York City mayors not ever winning subsequent office. But I think a reminder that if you're gonna do real things in government, if you're gonna make hard decisions, if you're gonna actually try to change things, um, it probably does make it harder to win further office. But at the same time, um, if that means you can get shit done, to me at least, that's the only reason to be in office in the first place. And still, you would have thought an open congressional seat should have been a slam dunk, but whatever, obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, should we, we, uh, we, we're gonna have to do another hard pivot here. You ready? Yep. Um, so you want to talk about um, on Saturday, the news came out that um, that the Russians bombed uh, the port of Odessa, uh, which is one of the major grain hubs for the entire world. Um, this comes uh, just as there was uh, an agreement being reached to um, to distribute some of the grain from from Odessa. So it's a just an unbelievably um, serious situation. Um, what 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 does it make what is, what does it make you think like what where yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts and and the article I guess we, we can post it was um, in Der Spiegel which is a, a German publication that you sent it to me and it was it was a very very long article but it was excellent in really framing the issue and the the main point that they were making is Putin is not only using global famine as a cudgel to try to reduce sanctions on Russia and and you know help him win his war in the Ukraine. But he has this goal of creating an OPEC-like grain cartel, right, which would effectively make him like the Saudis, but but for food, which is even more essential than oil, um, and that would make his his grip on power globally much much stronger than it already is, and it's already pretty strong. And so, you know, they estimate that as many as 323 million people are now at risk of famine um, because grain that is produced in the Ukraine or Russia is now not getting out, um, despite, you know, there's been agreements by Russia and the Ukraine, each with, with Turkey, to allow for exportation of grain, but they have not been honored at all by the Russians. And so the question is this, and we've talked about this in the podcast before. Okay, Putin is already causing a war that's incredibly destructive that we think is basically just his doing without really being sort of the will of the Russian people. Right now, it's not just that he's destroying the Ukraine and killing lots and lots of Russian soldiers for no reason. He's putting over 300 million people at risk of famine. So what's the point where you say, you know what? The problem is this one guy. He just has to go. And it seems to me when there's another 300 million people who are completely innocent, who have nothing to do with this, now at risk of starvation, um, we're at that point. So if, and I'm not, I have no idea what the CIA or the FBI or anyone else knows, but if you truly believe that if we were to assassinate Putin, there would be a nuclear counterstrike, then I understand not doing it, right? Because then you will have even more deaths than the risk of famine. But if you don't believe that that's going to be the reaction, either because the people who replace him don't like him either and they're happy just to have power and have the U.S. support of that, or because they are too smart to want to launch a nuclear war, um, then it seems to me that you're at the point where you take them out. Um, the U.S. knows where Putin is most of the time, right? And we know that if we sent incredibly weaponized drones to his DACA or wherever he is, you can kill him, right? You'll get him eventually, just like we did with bin Laden and others. Um, but of course, we worry about, about what comes out of that. And I think that's a fair concern to have. But when you're now looking at hundreds of millions of people 
at risk of famine and the potential of Putin basically controlling the world's grain supply and using that to starve people and, and force to tell, you know, his form of, of dictatorship or, or across the world, I think the calculus starts to change. So the first question is, um, should this change the way that we approach Putin and the Ukrainian war? Yes. But on the flip side, should we release the sanctions from Russia to get the grain out? Yes. Right now, I know, I know I'm saying two very contradictory things. On one hand, I'm saying they should literally kill the guy. On the other hand, I'm saying lift the sanctions that are crippling his economy. But my view is either way, just get the grain out, right? You got to feed people. And that is much more important than any geopolitical conflict of any kind. So, so that's the first question is whether it's through concessions or assassination or some combination of both, um, you, you can't allow the status quo to continue. The second, though, is, you know, we got to reimagine the global food supply chain, right? Because you've got multiple things that really have changed it and put it at risk. So one is geopolitical conflict. So obviously we may not want to have most of the world rely on places like Russia or China or anywhere else for its agriculture. But two, because of climate change, lots of normally high producing areas of agricultural output in the world are also not going to be able to or already can't um, because it's getting too hot, right? And so the question is really, do we recreate kind of where food for the rest of the world is grown and you'd want in a place that A, is less susceptible to climate change, at least over the next couple of decades, and B, is politically fairly neutral um, and democratic so that you're not going to have someone try to weaponize it. So like to me, it's like, well, should we try to make Canada the breadbasket of the world, right? It's it's for, far enough north that it's, it's going to hold off on climate change for a while. It's a pretty fair and independent country. Um, and whether it's Canada or the U.S. significantly increasing its agricultural output, whether we really in the tech world turn to agritech to really not just make farming more efficient, uh, but ultimately really just allow significantly greater production and, and scale. Um, I, I think we've got to think about all of that because I think the status quo has made it clear that that what we have right now is, is not tenable. So that's the second question. And then the third is just, how is it that there's no leadership on hunger, especially here in the U.S., right? I can't point to a single politician in this country that is sort of the champion of trying to feed the 10% of people in this country who do not have food or do not have enough food. Um, there's Jim McGovern, who's in, in the House. He's the chairman of the Rules Committee. He's fantastic on this issue. I'm a huge fan of his. There are some other people here and there um, that have jumped in to try to help. But by and large, you know, every other issue has their champion, right? Whether it's prescription drugs or cryptocurrency or abortion or anything else. And, and there's no champion for hunger. And, and I got to say, especially on the left, where they at least they claim that they want to help people. And that's why they're doing everything they're doing. They seem to care far more about renaming schools and bridges than they do about feeding hungry people. And it makes you question whether it's, are they really trying to help the people below them or are they just trying to hurt the people above them? And I think it's really just the latter. It's just about trying to, you know, take their envy and their uh, resentment um, and, and make themselves feel better with it by attacking the people who have more than they do. Because if they really care about helping people who have less than they do, they wouldn't be worrying about all this sort of purity nonsense and ideological nonsense. They'd be saying, how do we extend universal school meals? How do we create you know, college-free, hunger-free hunger college campuses? How do we expand SNAP for seniors? All the programs that we work on out of touch philanthropies. And they don't do any of that, right? Um, you know, right now, Bernie Sanders, if he's such a pure, you know, wonderful, self-righteous man, or Elizabeth Warren, 
Why won't they say we're not voting for the reconciliation bill unless school meals extension is in here? And you know what? Yes. Have they sponsored legislation to have universal school meals? Sure. Every member sponsors legislation all the time that's meant for a press release and nothing else. Um, but if they truly believed what they were saying and they truly cared about people, um, they would do what Joe Manchin is doing, right? And they would say, like, because every Democratic senator has the same amount of power as Joe Manchin. He's just the only one with the balls to use it. Um, and Manchin, you know, who, who I've met with on this issue, and he said the right things, but he certainly didn't uh, make it a precondition for a reconciliation bill. Um, so it just seems to me the left especially is so unbelievably hypocritical on this because they believe in the power of government to help people. This is the thing that is the most fundamental, eating, right? It does not get more tangible than that. And yet they're not using their political power to do it. So we have a lack of leadership in the U.S. Um, there's a lack of global leadership. The U.N. is very good on food, but it's a very weak body overall. Um, and we have a global food supply chain that is totally screwed up. Far too much of it is located in places that are, are politically unstable. Far too much of it is located in places that are being decimated by climate change. And as a result, you know, hundreds of millions of people are now at risk, maybe even more. And I just don't see how we can have a world that allows that. In terms of the global emergency right this second, um, do you see the Biden administration jumping in here and trying to... No. Trying to... Have you seen them jump into anything and solve a problem effectively? Uh, no. Right. So why would they now? No. I mean... Well, I mean, because 300 million people are at risk of starvation. I mean, there is... A, there yeah, I mean, is... I'll tell you what they're doing. There's a White House conference on hunger coming up. And everyone's very in the hunger community. Everyone's so excited about it. Oh, we're going to finally. And so what? So you get a photo op. So you get like a cool mem- like cool badge that you were at the White House or something like that. What the fuck, man? A conference? Seriously? Like, I, look, I know that, that at least Lisa Quigley, who runs our hunger uh, initiative, will participate in it. And it's fine for her to be there. But to me, like, it's, not, it's like a blue ribbon commission. It's like the most pathetic thing. It's like that all you can do is have a fucking meeting. Like, Get out there and help people, you know, extend universal school meals, extend SNAP for seniors, you know, find the 323 million people in Africa, in the Middle East, in the Baltics who are at risk of starvation and make sure that they have more resources for food. And we're not doing any of that. And I just I just find it beyond pathetic. I I really struggle to understand um, how this is not the top priority for so many people. Um, Bradley, do you think we can pivot from here and to talk about a TV show, or is that just too? Yeah, I think so. So, so we're going to skip the super yacht thing. For, we can leave that for next week. Oh my God, the super yachts. We are going to have to skip that. That was a particularly bad uh, follow up to the world hunger crisis. Um, well, or, or a perfect one, right? <laughs> right. People are spending $500 million on yachts, right? If, if you spent $500 million politically in the US, you could absolutely solve hunger because you could pass bills that would create. Um, programs that ensure that everyone who needed access to food would have it all the time. And yet instead, it's about proving that your dick is bigger than some other billionaire's dick by trying to have a bigger yacht than them. And it's so fucking pathetic. Well, we, ha- we do have a couple of things to say on that, but we're going to save for next week. And we're going to talk about a show, a television show that you recommended to me weeks ago called The Bear. And I have to give you some credit, Bradley, because when you told me about it, I had not heard a word about it. And since that, time i watched it immediately i think I, it's eight episodes they're about what's great is it it's a dramatic series eight episodes they're only about half an hour long so you can you can just like inhale the show yeah um, I, I watched it all in one day you that's amazing of course you did um so i i watched it in two days but so not quite as fast but uh as soon as you told me about it i watched it and then it's just literally exploded like suddenly it's like widely agreed upon to be the best show on television so i have to give you some credit for that first of all and i think you and i have slightly different 
takes on it. So one of the things that I really love, so the show is set in Chicago. It's at like a, like a sandwich shop, basically. Uh, Italian beef would be the correct term. Italian beef. Are, are no, those a thing in Chicago? in Chicago? Yeah, it's a very big thing. They do make sandwiches though, right? I'm not wrong about that. They yeah, make- but it's Italian beef. It's, it's, it's beef, gravy, sometimes cheese, sometimes uh, garden, hardened air, uh, you know, toppings um, on a hoagie roll, basically. Okay. That's so, what I So it's this, it's this highfalutin chef guy who comes to take over his brother's business um, uh, that's kind of fading, great, but fading, um, and tries to kind of take it over, reinstill it with the, you know, with greatness. Um, and it's sort of a character study. And it's also this amazing ensemble piece where you have all these sort of very vivid uh, characters in the kitchen and around the kitchen um, who each have their own kind of perspective and their own goals and their own sort of stories. Um, and he is a super intense driven guy. His name is Carm. And my see him, I mean, what I love about the show is that it shows like these kind of great aspirations in this very minor offbeat kind of like quirky sort of down at the heels place. And you see that, that weird collision of like super intense effort aspiration hitting the real world in a, um, in, in a really interesting way. So I just love that. I loved what it said about work and desire and, and like what people get out of their jobs. That's not about money and it's not about, um, just their own personal advancement, but is about, like it's sort of like a cause, like a, a well, belief. but that's what I mean, and and we we could have kind of gotten into this on um, on super yachts too. But look, fu- fundamentally, all behavioral economics and all happiness science, sort of, and I talk about this on the podcast all the time, shows that the things that ultimately produce the greatest happiness for people is not super yachts, right? It is a sense of belonging, a sense of fulfillment, a sense that you're doing something that helps other people. Um, we're strong personal relationships where you care about people and they care about you. That's ultimately what we all need um, to be happy. And while Carm seems totally fucking miserable throughout the show and his business is a really hard business and things go wrong and keep in mind that there's TV shows, so things have to go wrong every single episode to make it interesting. <laughs> Fundamentally, you know, there's a community of people there in that store, in that shop, in that restaurant that, you know, even if they fight a lot, do really seem to love each other. Um, they're providing sustenance to a community that makes them a broader community that they, that they live in and that makes them feel really good about themselves. They're producing something um, that is delicious and, and they can be proud of it. Um, do, you feel, so, do you see people feeling good about themselves in the show almost ever, though? I, I think you feel yeah. good about them, but there do they? Moments, no, but there are moments like, like, like where Marcus makes the cake, right? Or like there are moments where they do something. Going on the that, ground. <laughs> that is a radical departure from how the store used to how the restaurant used to be run. Right. Um, and you can see them feeling good about themselves. Look, they struggle a lot because one, life is hard and people struggle. Two, making a living running an Italian beef place is not easy to say the least. Um, but ultimately, I think the underlying point of the show is despite all their struggles, despite all their challenges, um, this is really worthwhile for them because the things that you want and need most out of life um, are produced by this. So, look, would they like to have a super yacht or even just like an apartment that the mortgage is paid off on? Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, it's not like, you know. Yeah, I don't think they're thinking of the super yacht, but I think the second one, yeah, I agree with Yeah, you. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like I've seen her saying money doesn't matter and the only thing that matters is sort of fulfillment and meaning and community and relationships. Um, 
But, you know, I think the point of the show is this matters a lot more than our society gives credit for, right? We have, we have a capitalistic system that I generally support, but that's just based on consumption uh, of material goods, right? More and more and more, and your happiness is totally dependent upon what you can purchase. And we get on the hedonic treadmill, and we are constantly saying, well, if I could only buy this, if I could only have that, then I'll be happy. And of course, every single time you do that, the dopamine hit lasts, lasts less and less, and you have to buy something even more and more outrageous the next time to try to produce one at all. Um, and that's sort of the opposite of actually how humanity works. So I think the show does a really great job of expressing that without being preachy at all, without shoving in your face. It's entertaining. It's gripping. The acting is fantastic. Um, and look, I lived in Chicago for seven years. So obviously, I, I have a fondness for the place. Um, but I, I really do uh, recommend people check it out. Well, thank you, Bradley. Thank you for being so out front. Now, I, you, somehow you're going to have to top that recommendation. So I hope you're watching tons of shows. The old man. Uh, I, 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 I don't I, like the old man. I, I watched episode three last night. I really like it. Uh, I, I have to say the first episode with, where they explain the whole plot on a phone call, I just like, can't, can't stand that. No, I, I, I know I, I've heard it gets better, but that first episode really is lazy. Really Look, I, I'm, I'm the king of the trigger figure, whether it's TV or books or movies, where if I'm not into it after like the first 50 pages or 10 minutes, I'm out. So I certainly can't blame you for doing that. But I will say that it does does get better. Bradley, till next week. Cool. There you go. Thanks. Thanks.